I must confess I lied to you. I, I told him I was going to preach on how to be a bad mother from the life of Queen Athaliah. We're not going to go that route. Instead, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1. If we wanted to theme this along Mother's Day, we could say that this is a passage in which James outlines the path of sin in mothers, but that doesn't sound very good. Or we could go to a senior-level high school English classroom with Mrs. Limburg, forcing us to read uh, the Shakespearean comedy Hamlet, in which Hamlet, in feigning his... Um, insanity basically tells the king that at his marriage he and his mother became one therefore he bids the king good night by saying good night mother so we can apply this passage to all of us in James chapter 1 we'll be looking in verses 12 through 18 this evening this letter written to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, written specifically to Jewish believers by the half-brother of Christ. One of the themes that James traces throughout this letter is how to grow as a Christian. And he starts this letter off just reminding us that maturity as a believer comes as we have a proper response to trials that occur in our life. In verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. That word is also translated as trials, various areas in our life where we are going through a time of trial. Scripturally, there are two categories that we see trials falling into. Trials can be a testing from God, testing his people to see whether we will be faithful to him during those times. More often, though, we think of trials as temptations. Temptations encouraged by the world, the flesh, the devil, to turn us from God. And oftentimes, trials that we go through in life begin as a test from God. To see whether we will be faithful to him, to trust him, to depend on him. But they become temptations as we seek to avoid those trials by resistance. If you look at the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, as God is leading them out, and you even have, um, as they are coming to the Red Sea, and these Israelites who had just witnessed firsthand the ten plagues on Egypt, who had just seen God's amazing power demonstrated to deliver them. And now they have the Red Sea in front of them and mountains to the left and to the right and Pharaoh's army coming at them. God is testing 
Are you going to depend on me and the children of Israel, if we're familiar with it, don't depend on God? Rather, they begin to murmur and complain, Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? And that try or that testing from God became a temptation as they sought to accomplish it outside of God's will. One commentator has said that a temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way or outside of the will of God. In the passage we'll be looking at this evening, James outlines the path of sin. And then he gives us three concepts that as believers we are to consider as we face the various trials in our life, whether they be a test from God to prove our faithfulness to him, or a temptation to get us to turn from him. James writes in verse 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creature. James starts this by giving us the path of sin. I don't know about you, but oftentimes in my life I think of sin, I think of it as a momentary act. You know, we see people who are in prominent places and they have the phrase that they just fell into sin. Or we have the excuse, the devil made me do it. But James in this passage outlines for us the fact that when we sin, there's a path that leads up to it. And a mature believer, as they are on that path, he's going to outline three considerations for them so that we can, as he says in verse 12, endure the temptation, so that we can go through them. And this path of sin is outlined starting with verse 14, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. And the path of sin starts with our desires, or it starts in the seat of our emotions. Oftentimes we see the word lust, and in our English mind today, we, we think of it in a sexual manner, but what James is referring to here is just any type of desire. So we have to ask the question, are then desires bad? And the answer is no. 
Without desires, we wouldn't function. You know, if we didn't get hungry, if we didn't get thirsty, we wouldn't eat or drink. If we wouldn't get tired, we wouldn't sleep. Having the desire itself is not wrong. But when we seek to satisfy those desires outside of God's will, that's when we get to the sin. The desire to eat is good. Okay, more than likely you had a wonderful meal today. Mothers, if you were blessed, you were able to have an extra fancy Mother's Day meal that you had to do no preparation for. And that desire to eat is not a bad thing. However, we can take that desire to eat and it can quickly turn to gluttony, which is sin. The desire to sleep is good. Not in service, okay, I'm watching. But if you're tired, your body needs sleep, your body is communicating that to you, that's good. But there can come a point where that desire to sleep goes from being a good thing to then being laziness. The desire to provide for one's family financially is good. But that can turn into the love of money, which is greed and sin. Our desires must be our servants, not our masters. And James tells us that we are drawn away by these desires. Being drawn away carries the idea of a baited trap. I remember when my wife and I were still in the dating phase of our lives and I made my first trip up to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. We was there with her family and her father told me, all right, Brian, tomorrow we're going to go out bear baiting. I grew up here. The only bears are in Chicago and you don't worry about them. They can't beat anybody. Like, bear baiting, okay. Bears eat meat. We're going to go throw a bunch of meat in the woods. Is he going to leave me tied to a tree? What is his plan? What is his purpose? And so we get up the next morning and we start to load up five-gallon buckets of this bear bait. So we go to the back area of the yard, and he has several 55-gallon uh, drums there. And I'm like, okay, if this is meat, this is going to be nasty. And he takes the first lid off, and this wonderful aroma hits my nose, and I look, and it's this full of just jelly. I'm like, okay. And then the next lid comes off, and this 55-gallon drum is just filled with crushed-up ice cream cones. And then the next one is a German chocolate cake frosting, and I'm like, okay, hang on a second. Is he fattening me up? And so I asked him, he said, no, bears have a really big sweet tooth and a very keen sense of smell. And so we took several of these five-gallon buckets that we had filled. We went out to the different locations that he had his cameras at and was able to see the bait piles, and we put it there, and we covered them, and 
on the way back, I'm just thinking, I'm like, you know what, Rube, this really isn't fair. He goes, why not? I'm like, well, after the bears eat this, they're going to have to stop and take their blood, or blood sugar, and that'll give you a clear shot. But just as that aroma would take a bear out of its natural environment, out of its natural desire to eat, good thing, but that aroma is going to lead that bear because of uncontrolled desire to his impending doom. We are drawn away by our lust, our desires, our emotions. We are enticed. This deals with deception or our intellect. The idea here that James is getting at would be if you ever go fishing. I don't like fishing. I like catching, but I don't like fishing. Especially not if it's on the ice. There are some people crazy enough to do that. If that's you, bless your heart. But you take that bait, you put the worm on the hook, so that as the fish is going by, the fish sees the bait, but they don't see the hook. The goodness of the desire keeps them from seeing the consequence. Now, I wonder if David had had the foresight and seen the results of what being on that rooftop when he should have been in battle would have been. The death of a child, the murder of Uriah, the defiling of Tamar, the murder of Amnon, the rebellion of Absalom. If David would have seen those consequences, would he have had the relationship with Bathsheba? Or if Lot would have seen the results of his split with Abraham, his wife turning into a pillar of salt, his daughter's immorality, the destruction of his family, friends, and home, might he have seen past the well-watered plains of Jordan? We do see Moses able to see past the bait. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11 that he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. Enticing goes a step beyond just the emotional desires that we have, and it begins the plotting of how we can actually then accomplish it, or even justifying the decision that we are making. Yes, I know that this may be wrong, but if I only go so far, if I only take a little nibble of that worm, I can avoid the hook. And after our desire conceives a plan to take the bait, our will then approves and acts on it. And lust, when it hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And James here takes the, changes the word picture from someone who is fishing or hunting and changes it to the birth of a child. Once we allow our desires to run full course, once we allow our emotions to run without check, the result is sin. 
This is a mother bearing her child. At conception, there is a child. As we grow and mature in the physical sense, our mindset towards life changes. You know, when we're younger, when we're children, most of what we do is just, how is this going to make me feel? But as we grow older physically, we begin to think more through what would the consequences be. And after giving us the path of sin, going from our emotions to our intellect to then our will and the action, James gives us three concepts to consider as we're going through temptation in order to avoid sin. And the first is to consider God's judgment. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The final step, disobedience, gives birth to death. And we see this pattern used in the very first tempting and sin in Genesis chapter 3. Eve looks at the tree, she looks at the fruit, and she sees that the fruit looked good. She had a desire to eat it. Is a desire to eat wrong? No. But because of what she wanted to eat was specifically told no. She was acting outside of God's will. This fruit was pleasant to the eyes. The deception. Trying to work in her mind, how can I do this? Because it looks good and the reasoning. And she took and she ate the act of disobedience. And what's the result? We know what the serpent told her, you will not die. God didn't tell you the truth. God is a liar. But as soon as Eve takes a bite, she hands it to her husband who is with her. He takes a bite and there is immediate broken fellowship with God. There is immediate spiritual death and ultimately physical death. Now, what James is not saying is that if, as a believer, we sin, God is immediately going to kill you. Okay, as we've been looking at on Sunday evenings in Exodus chapter 34, God is long-suffering. God is merciful. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance in Ezekiel chapter 18, God asked the question, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, and not that he should return from his ways and live? God demonstrates mercy to us by giving us time to repent and have that fellowship restored. But when we do sin, we do experience that same broken fellowship with God that Adam and Eve did. And John does warn in 1 John chapter 5 about a sin that is unto death. If any man see his brother sin, a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, 
and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. The idea there, you know, what, what is that sin? John doesn't tell us what a specific sin would be. But I think the idea of having an unrepentant attitude is what he's getting at. If we continue to live in sin and do not ask for forgiveness is the idea. You know, as we are young children, we may sometimes have the unfortunate pleasure of having the Board of Education applied to the seat of knowledge when we do wrong. And that's the first consideration that J James gives us here. Now look at what the consequences are. There is judgment for sin. So don't continue down the path because there are consequences. But as we mature physically, as we grow older, we don't not do wrong things because we're afraid of consequences. But as we mature, we start to reason and think about, okay, not that I'm afraid of a consequence, but how can I do something correct to please my parents? You know, as young children, sometimes we can be stubborn. Sometimes we can be willful. And our parents just have to lay down the law because I said so. But God doesn't want us at that point. As we mature and as we grow and as our children mature and grow, we go from the simple, because I said so, you will do this, to beginning to reason with them. Here's why we don't do that. And we begin thinking in our own minds, okay, I can bring my parents' pleasure and happiness by this obedience, or I can bring my boss happiness by this, and ultimately I can bring God happiness by obedience. The second concept that we are to consider is not just consider God's judgment, but secondly, consider God's goodness. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. As we mature spiritually, we choose to do right out of a love for our God, out of obedience to Him. So yes, remember God's judgment, but also remember the goodness of our God. One of Satan's oldest tricks is to try to cause us to doubt God's goodness. And that's exactly what he did with Eve in the garden did God really say that you couldn't have this one tree? And pointing out the prohibition, causing Eve to forget about the hundreds of other trees in the garden with fruit that she could eat from. The goodness of God is a great barrier against yielding to temptation. Because God is good, we do not need to look elsewhere to have our needs met. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses warns the children of Israel against complacency with the goodness of God. In verse 10, he records, It shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full. Then beware, lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. Ye shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which are round about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you. Lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from the face of the earth. He starts that by telling them, consider all the good that God is doing to you. You're about to enter into a land where you don't have to dig for water. You don't have to build houses. You don't have to fill the houses. Everything is going to be provided for you because God is good. But beware lest you forget the goodness of God and turn from him. In verse 17, James gives us four facts to consider regarding the goodness of God. And the first is the fact that the way that God gives is good. Every good gift. And in the original in this phrase, the word gift focuses on the act of giving, or the manner in which the gift is given. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. God gives us gifts, and he does so in a manner that is loving and is gracious. You know, we can sometimes give gifts to people, and we can do it in such a way that it takes away from the gift. If we do so begrudgingly, with a bad attitude. But the way that God gives is good. Not only does God give gifts in a good manner, but secondly, God gives only good gifts. Every good gift and every perfect gift. And the focus on this phrase for gift is on the item that is given itself. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, Jesus asks the question to the crowds, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children. You know, if your kids are hungry, Dad, I'm hungry, can I have some bread? Sure, kid, have a rock. Dad, I'm hungry, can I have some fish? you got to be really hungry to ask for fish. Sure, kid, have a snake. Or sure, kid, have a scorpion. You know, as earthly parents, we're not going to do that. We want to give good things to our children. And if we who are sinners can give good gifts to our children, how much more our perfect Heavenly Father give good things 
to them. But sometimes we don't feel like those gifts are good gifts. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul has asked the Lord to remove a thorn from his flesh three times, and three times God has told him no. But my strength is, or my grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul then proclaims about this thorn in his flesh. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, in that good thing that God has given to me, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The way that God gives is good. The gifts that he gives are good. And God gives constantly. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights and cometh is a present participle. Just like we see in the Sermon on the Mount, ask and ye shall receive, seek and ye shall find, knock and the door will be opened to you. Those are present particle or participles indicating a continuing action. Asking, continuing to ask to the point of nagging irritation as we heard in our Sunday school hour this morning. Seeking without giving up, knocking until that door gets open. And here we see in James 1, every good and perfect gift is continually coming down from the Father of lights. God doesn't just give good gifts in a good manner every once in a while, but he is continually giving good things to us, even if we may not see it. You know, your car stalls in the morning and it won't get started. And finally, after being frustrated, it turns over and you realize you're running five, ten minutes late to work. And as you're coming to work, you see on the road ahead of you all of the flashing lights. You realize, you know what, if I would have been on time, that could have been me. God, why isn't my car working well? It may be a good thing for you. The fourth truth is very simple. God doesn't change. God didn't simply give good gifts in a good manner continually to James's initial audience. There is no variableness. There is no shadow of turning. God doesn't change. Hebrews 13.8 tells us, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. God cannot change for the worse because he is holy. He cannot change for the better because he is perfect. We noted earlier, you know, what if David would have considered the consequences of his action with Bathsheba? But we also see, you know, David forgot the goodness of God. When David is confronted by Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. 
Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. David, look at what God has done for you, taking you from a field of sheep, making you king, protecting you when Saul was wanting you dead, giving you not just Judah, but also Israel. And if that had been too little, Nathan tells David, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. David, if what God had given you wasn't enough, he was willing to give you more. David forgot the goodness of God. And he took the bait. He was enticed and led away. Joseph, on the other hand, used the goodness of God to keep him from sinning with Potiphar's wife. In Genesis 39, verse 9, when she is tempting him, Joseph responds, There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he, Potiphar, kept back anything from me but thee because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Recognizing the good that God had done for him. You know, the good of being thrown into a pit by his brothers. The good of being sold as a slave in Egypt. And later, the good of him then being thrown into prison and when we get to the end of Genesis, when Joseph's father dies and his brothers all come to him, Joseph, dad wants you to forgive us because we know you've just been waiting for dad to die and now you're going to punish us. Remember Joseph's response to them? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. As we go through life, as we go through temptations and trials, instead of being lured away by our desires and our emotions, instead of taking the bait, consider the goodness of God. What has he done for you? And thirdly, consider God's divine nature within. Verse 18, James writes, of his own will. Begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James now goes again to the illustration of our rebirth. We see, first of all, that our rebirth is divine. He writes that of his own will, of God's desire, begat he us. Birth not of the flesh, but from above. Being born not of the flesh, but of the Spirit, as we see in John 3, Christ's conversation with Nicodemus. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Because we are saved, because we have placed our trust and our faith in Christ, we have his divine spirit 
within us. But not only that, the divine nature within us is gracious. James writes that it is of God's own will. We did not earn the second birth, nor did we deserve it. Yet God, through his grace, desired a relationship with us while we were his enemy. God, through his grace, desired a relationship with us while we were in active rebellion against him. And God, through his grace, desired a relationship with us while we were slaves to sin. And God graciously gave us that which we did not deserve. We deserved his wrath. And yet God gave us the perfect sacrifice that would reconcile us to him. God gave us the perfect sacrifice that would appease his wrath. And the perfect sacrifice that would pay our ransom. As we looked at this morning with Christ on the cross, the perfect sinless Son of God. Not something that we can earn. Not something that we deserve, but it is of God's grace. The nature we have within is a divine nature. It is a gracious nature. It is a nature that is through God's word. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. We see in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The nature that we have within us is through the sacrifice that Christ paid on the cross. But it is also for His purpose that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The Jewish believer and the initial audience would have immediately recognized this analogy to the offering of the first fruits, which was a sacrifice, a demonstration of one's devotion and obedience to God. As we are going through life, recognizing and looking forward to when we are glorified, when we are with our Lord and Savior in heaven, and we will not sin. And as we go through trials on this earth, there's going to be a point thinking ahead where I will not sin. And James is telling us that as we go through the temptation, consider that. In 1 John, John tells us, chapter 3, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And every man that has this hope, what hope? The hope of Christ. The hope of the glorified, resurrected body like Christ. Every man that has this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he, Christ, is pure. 
Because I know what is going to happen, I am going to make the decisions and live as if it has already happened. If we let our old nature, our first birth, take over, we will fail in our trials. But if we consider the second birth, our divine nature, we can have victory and pass. Sin is not just something we accidentally stumble into. Rather, it is the natural result of our will, doing what our emotions desire for us to do and our intellect justifies in our minds. And while we are on that path, James encourages us to look ahead. If we continue down the road of sin, there is judgment. But he also encourages us to look around. Recognize the goodness that God has done for us. And he encourages us to look within, recognizing God's indwelling spirit that we have. And as we mature in our Christian lives, as we follow these considerations, the trials that we face can be tests that we pass rather than temptations that we fail on our journey to being like Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I ask that you would just be with each of us as we go through daily times in our lives where we are tested, where we go through trials, where our flesh desires us to meet those emotional desires we have outside of your will. But Father, I pray that you would help us to just consider, yes, the judgment for sin, but more importantly, the goodness that you have done to us and the good you have given us, relying on the divine nature that we have within we ask these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.